Hi, everyone. Before we start the show, I want to let you know this is a very special episode on Iswatini. Our guest is Ebelikle Mabusa. He is a journalist. He covered the pro-democracy protests in his country um, and experienced abuses at the hands of the police. So this episode is really his story, and it will be longer than the usual 15 minutes. We'll also skip some of the questions we usually ask. One final note, this episode includes graphic descriptions of police brutality, and it may be upsetting to some listeners. Okay, here's the show. Welcome to 49. My name is Judd Devermont. I'm the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was a national intelligence officer for Africa and worked in the National Security Council. And I'm Nicole Ouellette. I'm chief of staff at the Open Society Foundations. And like Judd, I served at the National Security Council. I also served at the US State Department and at Senate Foreign Relations Committee, all with a focus on Africa. This podcast is everything you need to know about U.S. policy towards sub-Saharan Africa. What happened in the past? What should the Biden administration do? Plus, we promise to deliver the goods in 15 minutes or less, one country at a time. This episode is about Eswatini, formerly known as Swaziland. And we are joined by Mabalise Buyisa, a writer and editor at New Frame. It's important to note that we're recording this episode in early July. Events in Swaziland are very fluid right now. There have been protests and police brutality against students and journalists and other civil society activists. And we'll talk about that a little bit throughout the episode. But first, Nicole, can you give us a short history of U.S. policy towards Eswatini? The United States assigned its first consul to Mumbani, the capital, in 1946. The objective was to buck up the British who were under pressure to hand over Swaziland, as well as Botswana and Lesotho, to the South Africans. The U.S. position was that Swaziland should be free from South African influence and eventually become independent. Until 1979, the U.S. ambassador was based in Botswana and responsible for Swaziland and Lesotho. While there was a fondness for King Sabuza II, a lack of U.S. senior diplomat presence meant the job was primarily about showing the flag. Swaziland was also viewed as a meeting place, essentially neutral ground for talks about Rhodesia and South Africa. As a full-fledged monarchy, Swaziland was not a democracy. Political parties were banned and the U.S. diplomats were concerned about the monarchy's lavish spending. But it was important because of its location to U.S. interests. In fact, when King Sobuza died in 1986, President Reagan sent his daughter Maureen to attend the coronation of the current King Maswati III. There was a foreign broadcast information service, FBIS, stationed there, and many U.S. companies, such as Coca-Cola, moved their Southern African regional headquarters there instead of South Africa. There were also South African refugees seeking sanctuary in Swaziland. As the Cold War ended and South Africa transitioned to a multiracial democracy, U.S. officials started to increase their engagement on democracy, governance, and human rights issues, especially regarding freedom of the press and state repression. In 2014, President Obama removed Swaziland's eligibility for the African Growth and Opportunity Act, AGOA, because of the weakness of workers' rights. While Trump restored AGOA eligibility in 2018, a recent U.S. ambassador in 2020 rebuked the king for his extravagance, citing royal trips to Disneyland and the purchase of 11 customized Rolls Royces for the royal family. Judd, do you want to talk about a major U.S. success or policy failure? Well, this one is is a strange episode for us because we're right in the middle of a crisis. 
And I would argue that the answer so far is that we're failing. It's clear that the people of Eswatini are standing up for democracy. They are pushing back uh, on the monarchy and the fact that much of the government isn't elected. There has been police brutality, as our guests will talk about. And yet the U.S. statements have been fairly anodyne concerns, statements about security for U.S. citizens, but not enough to align themselves with the protesters. And before we get into the strategy, maybe I believe they, you want to talk just a little bit about what you've experienced on the ground. here again, sub-editor and journalist for New Frame in South Africa. I have been reporting about the current unrest uh, since the 26th of June 2021. I want to begin on the 17th of May when students and other young people marched from Waluseni, where one student allegedly killed by the police went to school. He was a law student there. So students marched to, uh, to the Esikotweni police station to demand justice for him. That was the beginning of the unrest. It was an expression of anger by young people who see the police as corrupt, uh, who see the police as brutal, and who see the police as an extension of the system, as people who, 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 who keep the system going, using their guns. So ordinary citizens led by students marched to the police station in Scotveni, where they delivered a petition. They then marched to the country's biggest town. I don't want to call it a city. And along the way, police dispersed them using tear gas, using force, using water cannons, and injured many, even firing rubber bullets at one pure Ngozi Lamini who nearly lost an eye. And then during the, you know, uh, because the issue here at that point was the death of one Tabani Ngomonye, and people demanded justice for him. He allegedly died at the hands of the police. And that is when a public anger intensified. Immediately after that, there was a parliamentary session where the king's brother, Prince Melani, advised the police and security officers, because in Switzerland we have correctional services, the Royal Swaziland Police, and the Umbutfo Eswatini Defense Force, they act as one sometimes, even though correctional services are responsible for jails and everything, but they sometimes take the role of police. They are just as armed. They control crowds, that sort of thing. Prince Melane called upon them to fight fire with fire characterizing the young people who were marching as crooks. And minister, the minister of Tinkunla administration, Kroiza Ngampalala, also advised the members of parliament in the house, who are not members of political parties, by the way, because political parties in Eswatini are banned, advised them to ignore these young people and to ignore their cries and their demands characterizing them as mere noise, concluding that young people in this country do not vote. And it is true, uh, voter turnout in the last elections was less than 30%, if I recall correctly, but I will have to confirm that. 
And uh, I, it was immediately afterwards that the prominent members of parliament who are pro-democracy held a press conference supporting the young people calling for justice for Tabani and also, not really for the first time, but broadly calling for democratic reforms. But the one thing they are calling for is the election of a prime minister. In Eswatini, a prime minister has always been appointed by the king, he has always been a Lamini, he has always been a member of the extended royal family. It has never happened, for example, that a Jude or uh, you know, a, a Mbuyisa or a Smelane was prime minister. It's always just one surname, the king's surname, and always from his bigger, bigger, bigger family. And, and after this pro-democracy MP specifically called for democratic reforms, uh, young people on social media specifically started approaching their members of parliament, sending them tweets, sending them WhatsApp messages because their numbers are public and asking, uh, you know, asking specifically what your position is. First, on the murder of Tabaningomonye, on police brutality in general, and, and why are you silent in parliament? Why don't you say something? Many of the members of parliament responded to that with hostility, but pressure, public pressure grew until young people started petitioning their MPs physically. So young people started marching to constituencies because there are 59 constituencies in Eswatini. So they started going there with their demands where the issue of police brutality, uh, a, a part of it all, but also they began calling for democracy too. They began calling for the election of an MP in support of Mtutuzis Melane and, uh, and the other pro-democracy MPs' demands. This happened to about half the Dingunla centers in Eswatini, in about half uh, the administrative constituencies. Until on the 24th, the government, bothered by this, decided to ban the delivery of petitions. It was on the 24th of June. But people continued to organize. I was uh, with young people on the 25th, a day after the delivery of petitions was banned by the government, citing anarchy. I went to a place called Ngoyoyo under Mojani constituency, where young people with speakers uh, were going from community to community, calling upon all people to come and demonstrate and take a petition to their member of parliament. And uh, the following day, that was the 26th of June, people came out in numbers and tried to assemble at Mojani, at Nduma, where the clinic is. And there was a crowd of police officers who immediately dispersed them using tear gas and using batons and all sorts of things. And where a community member, a sickly community member by name of Stembis Oregi Lamini, 
uh, from Gopeleni, but under the same constituency, was assaulted for wearing a Pudemo t-shirt. Pudemo is a political, a bent political party in Switzerland, and uh, citizens are not allowed to wear political party colors. They still do anyway. They get assaulted and jailed. And in 20, 2009 or 2011, Juan Sipo who was a Pudemo member, was assaulted and killed in police custody after being arrested for wearing a Pudemo t-shirt. So that was the 26th. Then there were demonstrations in Spofane and in other places, including in Sunduza and Nkaba. But the following day on Sunday, it was quiet, relatively quiet. On Monday during the day, uh, that was maybe the 28th, I think it was the 28th, it was quiet again during the day until late on Monday night when protests erupted. I hate using the word erupted, but, you know, uh, protests erupted in Matsapa, the country's industrial town. People there took to the streets and uh, soldiers moved in and there were reports that a number of people had been shot and a number of deaths were reported. And there are also reports that a number of people, at least three that were shot, were pulled and thrown into the embers. There was a fire at a factory, Sosland Beverages, right next to the MR3 highway. On Sunday, 3 July, I was arrested together with my colleague. We were passing that very same factory and we stopped briefly to take pictures of the damage where the fire had been. And the soldier came out of nowhere because we have since learned that the place is heavily guarded. Because of the allegations, I suppose, that there are remains of people in there. So when we took pictures, he came out of nowhere uh, with a rifle pointed at us signaled at us to come over and we went over and then he demanded to know why we were taking pictures and then he demanded that I delete pictures. I had used my cell phone to take pictures and Magnificent had used his camera but he quickly removed uh, the memory card so we were able to save some of it. He hid it somewhere. I deleted mine and then he detained us having seen our cameras, coined, uh, called his superiors, who also called another superior and another superior who were standing there for at least two hours after about half past eight until one big boss of the years came, ordered us to hand over our keys, to hand over our equipment, hand over our cell phones and everything, but not before we notified our editor. And then we were taken to Scott Venny Police Station where we were thrown in holding cells. And in holding cells, we stayed for at least an hour and 30 minutes until one officer came and took us aside to a section of the, uh, of the police station where they began questioning us. We gave them the basic information about who we are and what we do. And when it came time for them to ask leading questions, uh, with a view to, to incriminate us, I suppose, we requested that we do that in the presence of a lawyer. And we asked if we had that right, and they said, sure, sure, sure. And then they took us back to holding cells and left. They were gone for two hours. And when they came back, it was another police officer in plain clothes, no uniform, who 
took me out of the holding cell, leaving my colleague in there, and took me to a room that looked like a communal office. And there were 15 police officers there in plain clothes. And I was made to sit on a bench, and the police officer began questioning me. Simple and basic questions. I responded to that, identify as who I am, what I do, uh, and what have you covered so far? Where have you been? Oh, you know, I told him that. And then he got to leading questions and again asked to do that in the presence of a lawyer. The moment I mentioned a lawyer, one of the officers who was nearby slapped me really hard on the side of the face. So, you know, I fell, but not all the way through. Uh, I just fell and, you know, off the bench and I crouched. And it was a shock to me because I didn't expect it. They seemed friendly to me. You know, I, I thought I was just going to get a call to call a lawyer and everything. So I was there having received this blow, crouching on the floor and, and shaking. Then he wanted to know who my father was, uh, where I had gone to school and who my father, my mother was and what she does and what are their numbers. And before I could say my father's name, another blow to the head. And, 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 and I fell, you know, all the way through. And by this time I'm shaking, visibly shaking. And then it was blows after that and blows after that and blows after that. I'm disrespectful. You, you, you got an education here. You're writing stories and you're sending them to South Africa. Are you, are you one of these people bending things up here? Are, are, are you sponsored by the EFF? And the EFF is a South African organization. And by this time... I can't speak. And, and the leading officer says, ceasefire, I think it's their language. So they stop assaulting me. I sit on the bench for some time, shaking, and they begin asking questions again. And I no longer bother about a lawyer. I answer as best I can and try to just to remain calm. But my, my voice is breaking and there's a smack on my face because I'm shocked, really, really shocked. And and, and because of this mech and because perhaps I'm not crying, one of the officers gets really angry. And he had a, a, a paper puncture, uh, a big paper puncture. He throws it at me and, and, and hits the ribs. And the leading officer, uh, instead of asking questions, comes towards me, comes for my hair because, you know, uh, I'm unkempt, you know, and, and, and comes from my hair, runs his hands through my hair, uh, and then throttles me a bit, and and and, and let's go. I, I get, you know, I get to breathe, but then he he goes for my hoodie. I was wearing a black hoodie, and and pulls me by it. Another officer pulls me, you know, pulls my feet, and I'm lifted a bit, and then they let me go onto the bench, and I fall, and the bench comes over me, and then. I'm in that position for a long time and I'm receiving blows and blows and blows until they say, cease fire. And it's not the pain that was scary, I suppose. It's the, it's the helplessness and, uh, and thinking that you are going to die. Uh, because this whole time you think you are going to die and you come, you come to terms with it, sort of. And uh, finally, they took me back to the cell let me sit there uh, for an hour. And when I got there, because there were others detained, uh, accused of having taken part in the protest. Many, I found them in the cell, about, I don't know, quite a number. And, and they hadn't eaten. Uh, there was, you know, the, their urine was there. I'm taken into the cell. 
again and and magnificent wants to know magnificent is my colleague he wants to know what happened but i can't really recount it because i'm in shock so i tried to recount it and instead i just cry you know just tears i just cry and i shake and i'm ashamed because i'm supposed to be strong you know i've always known myself to be strong but I'm shaken because this has never happened to me before and I didn't expect it. It just came as a shock and the police officer seemed civil, friendly even. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm shaken to the core. So I sit there and I shake, visibly shaking. And one of these guys in the holding cells, for some reason they managed to, uh, to get a cell phone. Uh, I don't know how they smuggled it, but a battery came from over there and the shell of a cell phone came from over there. They assembled it, and Magnificent, my colleague, gave them a South African number. They had a time. They sent an SMS to Magnificent's mother, who then contacted our editor. But, you know, then we were in that cell for a long time. Then they came back, I think one hour, 30 minutes later, and took me up again. Now, not to the room I was in earlier, to a bigger conference room where I find superiors sitting you know, at a long table and the rest of the intelligence officers in plain clothes sitting around. I think it was 51 of them. I didn't count, uh, you know, maybe 51, maybe less. I, don't, I have no sense of the number, clearly. And I sit there and they interrogate me and they are angry that I'm in Switzerland uh, covering this as an Eswatini citizen and sending it to South Africa and that I work for a South African company and that I'm with a South African. And, uh, you know, they want to know why. And I tell them that it's just a job for me. You know, I, 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 I could never get a job in Switzerland, but I got it in South Africa, luckily. And it's journalism. I'm not a member of any political party. Not that it's a sin, but I'm not. And... Uh, all those things, but while answering questions, uh, I'm sitting a certain way, and, and one officer interprets it as disrespect, and he kicks me and orders me to sit properly. And I'm shaking again, and I sit properly, and uh, I go through the questions, then I'm ordered to come and put a pattern on my phone, because they had my phone and they wanted to go through it. So I go and they want to know how I'm employed in South Africa. I explain that it's an independent contractor agreement and I edit and I write when I have the time. It just was not ending. It's circular. You come back to the same question, to the same question. It's recurring. Why are you doing this? You know, what are you, who are you taking pictures for? Are you part of an organization? Blah, blah. You tell them who you are, all these things, but they don't seem to care. They keep abusing you. They, they ask you to go out every once in a while so that they can caucus amongst themselves. Senior officers keep coming, keep coming, keep coming, and I have to start afresh, start all over again, start all over again until they took me back to the cells and took Magnificent this time around. And uh, he says he was tortured too, and he was there for a long time until later, a few minutes before four or maybe after three, a lawyer came. He had been contacted by New Frame, and then uh, we were released. But when we were released, we were visibly shaking, and the lawyer exchanged numbers, connected us to the editors. We spoke briefly, and then we ran 
uh, Tumbabane, and, and we were followed for some time, but we managed to get to the clinic, Zimbabwe clinic, and uh, a doctor checked us and, and everything. And then we sort of made friends with the staff. Uh, they learned what had happened. They tried to hide us. They gave us food. Uh, they gave us tea. They gave us cell phones. Uh, uh, you know, they gave us everything and then told us to just sleep in the car in the parking lot uh, because we were in danger of being murdered if we went back to the road because curfews at six and soldiers were on the roads. And with the South African number plate, uh, with our hair, we don't look presentable at all. And because the police had our profile, we were in danger. So we slept uh, at the parking lot in the Babane clinic. And in the morning, we quickly went to Malkins near where we had been assaulted uh, to get our clothes. That's where the guest house was. We got our clothes. I quickly went to Manzini uh, for a COVID-19 test because you can't go through the border without a test. I got it in two hours and then off to Oshuk we went. Luckily it rained, so there were no longer any soldiers on the road. And and the moment we were out, because we had submitted the story, uh, we gave them the go-ahead, you know, you can publish and everything, and, and that was the end of the ordeal. Uh, but we had seen families of people who have been killed. In fact, I was at Nguenya when one one victim was killed. Um, Simi Sim Kwanazi. I was in Gwenya when he was killed. I passed uh, at a roadblock that these guys had set up as part of the protests and went to get petrol about five minutes away. And one of them, knowing that I'm a journalist, came running saying, they have killed one of us. They have killed one of us. Come, come, come. He jumped into the car, went back there, and I found him lying there, and his brother was there. And uh, then the police came immediately afterwards because I, you know, I took a snap, just a picture of the death and a, a small video. You know, he was covered uh, on the tarmac and everything. And the police came. They told me to delete, but, uh, I, you know, I had backup. I was fine. I deleted what they could see. And then they demanded to see my papers. I showed them my papers. And then they told me to get the fuck out of there. I didn't. I just went in and stood over there and uh, together with the crowd. And then the pathologists came. And... Uh, um, Simis was covered with a blanket and, and, and there were, you know, there were stones uh, holding the blanket because it's quite windy in Gwenya, it's a high field area. So holding the blanket so that it doesn't get uncovered. Uh, and, but when the pathologists came, they took one of the stones saying it's evidence. He had no stone when he was killed. Uh, and and, and uh, the the officer in charge, I lied and said I'm a member of the family when other police officers came. So I got into their car together with the brother. We went to the hospital following the body. And when we got to the hospital, well, the head was emptied of its contents. It was a shell, you know, there was a, a gaping hole. And a doctor came out and, and, and just looked from a distance and made a note, you know, not really serious. He was not really properly observed. They explained the process and the way I understood it, they are just in charge of everything. They shoot him dead. They're in charge of the investigation. They play a big part in the post-mortem, everything. And uh, 
you know, still lying that I'm a member of the family, I ask about getting lawyers to be a part of the process. And the police officer becomes really hostile and says, what do you need lawyers for? We will do the investigation ourselves. And the family, distraught and everything, didn't seem to care. But it bothered me a great deal. But I can't really do anything. I'm just a journalist. I was there trying to observe what was happening. Thank you so much for sharing such a, a horrifying and harrowing uh, journey that you have experienced you know, at the hands of, uh, of the people who are supposed to be protecting uh, Eswatini citizens. And uh, I know I speak for Nicole, and we're, we're grateful that you share that story because people need to hear what's happening in Eswatini. Nicole, I think we should probably just end with perhaps just a couple of thoughts from you on uh, what the U.S. government should be doing to address some of the protests in, in Eswatini and push for accountability for the violence against, I believe, Le and, and other journalists and citizens. I believe, say, I just also want to add my voice to say thank you for sharing your story with us. I'm so sorry for what you and Magnificent have experienced and been through and for so many other citizens of your nation, it is a horror to hear it in detail and yet also incredibly important. And when you say that you felt like you couldn't do anything, you were just a journalist or that you felt great shame in your experience, I just hope you know that sharing it with the world is doing something incredibly important for your country at this moment. So we are very grateful. The answer, of course, to what the U.S. should be doing on this is more. We speak about human rights and democracy as being a core American value. And I think this is a situation in which policymakers really need to pay greater attention and they need to hear stories like this in the same way that they do in other places in the world where there's torture and abuse at the hands of security forces and police. Um, the United States, I, I don't know that we've used our leverage significantly, and this is certainly the time to do so in terms of public diplomacy, private diplomacy. I would like to think that there are um, very serious conversations happening about a GOA suspension, about the U.S. government bringing greater attention and bearing witness to these crimes in the Capitol. But I also think um, between Congress and the U.S. government, there should be serious consideration about how to support civil society at this critical moment. Investigative journalists like yourself who are doing everything they can to get the story out. The U.S. government is able to amplify those messages and certainly should be doing so in terms of, of what we could do that would really be impactful, but certainly not typical would be to seriously think about how to support those who are driving for change even when there is this question about political party affiliation, there's certainly a lot we can do from the governance side to be influential. So I uh, hope and Judd and I will do everything we can to have this story be shared as widely as possible. And again, we're really grateful for your bravery and being here and telling it today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, that's the show. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and check out our analysis at csis.org backslash Africa. Thanks.